When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. Long Island Vibes. On 107.1 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Now here's your host, Frank McKay. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, someone who's put together just an amazing career, a long career. He's been around a long time for a young guy. He's a singer, songwriter, actor, you know his work from Herman's Hermits and so much more solo work. Peter Noon is our very special guest. Peter, how are you? Um, fantastic. Thank you, Frank. I'm on a couple of days break from a tour, 118-day tour. And um, I'm having a wonderful, you know, I have no complaints at all about anything. That's an incredible statement that you just said there. 118-day tour. I mean, you've been doing this for such a long time, but that's great. I mean, 118 days. You've got to be in great shape. Well, I'd like to think I was. I can always be, everybody could always be in better shape than they are. You know, I'd, I obviously need to lose 10 pounds just like everybody else in America. But um, I'm trying to keep fit, you know, because I want to keep going as long as I can. I look at Mick Jagger. And I go, well, look, he's, what is he, 77? Yeah. So, you know, I'm only 70, so I've got at least another seven years to go. And I think probably 10 will be good. Yeah. 10 more years of, of doing lots. See, my hobby is, is what I do for a living. I began my life as a fan of music, and I, I put together a little band, and we played for fun, and we played like at my sister's school dance. And we enjoyed it so much that we practiced more and more, and, and that became Herman's Hermits. And I don't really do anything else. If, when I'm not on tour, I play music. I sit at home and I play music. So if music is your hobby and your jobby, and your, your hobby is your jobby, then you're okay. <laughs> How much different does it feel now going out and picking up to do a tour as opposed to back in the 60s? I mean, is it, you know, other than the obvious, you know, that both a little older as we, you know, get there, but how much different does it feel preparation-wise and even excitement level? You seem very enthused about everything you're doing, and it shows on stage. Well, you know, I find it much more, it's much easier now because I, I took, you know, I always was, even at the beginning of, of the touring process, you know, when we would get in a little van and drive to to Liverpool and do a concert at the Cavern, to now, I, I, I'm I totally self-contained. You know, I don't travel with any of the hermits. I travel on my own. I, rent, I follow Chuck Berry's idea. I rent a car when I get in town so I don't have to deal with that limo stuff. Yeah. And I'm kind of under the radar, and it gives me an opportunity to go. For example, I was in Jackpot, Nevada last week, and I went on a 10-mile hike, and I, I know more about Jackpot Nevada than the people who work at the casino. <laughs> and, you know, there's a little airport there, and there's a golf course, and there's all kinds of little houses, and local people live in there. And, and that's called cool. That's what I do, you know. And, and I go every town I go to, I wander around the town, so I've got something to talk about during the show. Because I'm only there because I'm doing a show. 
Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm only in. Yeah. Say I'm playing Westbury. I mean, what am I there for if it's not to do a concert? I wouldn't go to Westbury to. It's not a vacation spot for me. So, so I go around the world and I treat everything as like, um, you know, a, a, the end is to have as much fun as you possibly can on stage, and hope that wherever you play, invite you back again for more money, just like at the beginning. You know, we played the cavern at the beginning. We we we, we were really lucky because we were, you know, it, it was like reserved for much older men than us. You know, they were all 22 and we were all 15 and 14. (laughs) And and we got in there and the only intent was that if we could play there, and I think Bob Waller was the boss then, he gave us four pounds and we said, and at the end of the concert, he said, can you guys come back? And he offered us three dates and we got four pounds and 10 shillings. Wow. And it went up until we, uh, at the end we were getting the same money as the Beatles, which was £60. Jeez. I mean, what a view of history there. Just to comment on something you just said about Jackpot. I've been to Jackpot, Nevada, strangely enough, and I think it's only one casino there. You know, I don't know if it's more, and I just saw it. But, yeah, I think it's right on the border of Utah, right? It's kind of like... Uh, it's on the border of um, uh, uh, Idaho. Oh, uh, Idaho. Um, yes, yes, right. Yeah. Idaho. And, and, you know... It's what it is. Is this like the strip with with a couple of hotels and a general store and a gas station and a yeah. gift shop and you know all that stuff that they've always got in every town. But if you if you go behind, there's a casino called Cactus Pete's, and if you go behind there, there's an airport. Hmm. You know, Jackpot yeah. Airport, and it's five thousand one hundred and seventy five feet. And and I know a pilot from American Airlines who was taking a plane somewhere and stopped there for gas and came to see the show. So you, you you realize there's another thing behind the hotel. You can stay in the hotel and you can eat in the hotel and you can, but behind it. And then there's a massive new golf course been built there, which anybody a year ago wasn't there. And and, and there's all stuff like that. I mean, we're, we're talking about jackpot now, but, you know, everywhere's got, it's cultural anthropology, you know. Wherever I go, I'm, I'm interested. I'm It's all a big adventure. And I think that's what keeps me kind of... Um, it could be called Panglossian, naively optimistic. I, I expect the worst experience from the travel. You know, I expect the train to be late and the plane to be late and my bags to be lost. And if it isn't, then I'm pleasantly surprised and, and it's all, oh, this is good. I got my bag. Oh, and I've got a nice rental car. And oh, I got, you know, and it all yeah. is like that. So it's all an adventure. And, you know, you hope that they've got a bathtub in the hotel room so you can soak for an hour and read your email on your phone. Let me just remind folks that might just be tuning in a little late or turning on their radios just now. Frank McKay here with the wonderful, incomparable Peter Noon from Herman's Herberts. And let me tell you, I've been trying to get him for so long. Frank McKay here with Peter Noon. I'm thrilled at how you sound. I mean, you just sound so pumped up on everything that you're still doing. And and you mentioned Mick Jagger. You know, he looks like the same way, you know, and he's, you know, he's older than you. He's seven years older than you there. But I hate to ask the trite question, but did you imagine back in the 60s, you're part of this British invasion, you're part of this great movement coming over? Did you ever imagine that it would be going on till you were 70 and beyond? You know, I'm, I'm not sure what I thought. You know, I, really, we... It was kind of, it, it all happens, it, it, it's not a plan, you know, nobody plans that far ahead. 
So, so it wasn't even a concept. You know, the, we, met, we made a record. The idea was we were, we were playing in little clubs all over the place, and we had a following, you know, a little following, like 10 girls that showed up at more than one gig. And then it grew from there. And then one day you get lucky enough and you think, if we could just make a record and get it on the radio, not have a hit, just get heard on the radio, and then more people would know us. And, and do, do you know what I mean? And then yeah. we'd go from pounds to 12 pounds. And it grew and grew and grew and grew. And it was easy for me because it was my hobby. It wasn't really what I thought I was going to do forever because I thought I was going to be, be I thought I was going to go back to school and be a doctor because I'm from a, I'm from a culture where both my parents went back to university when I was six or seven years old. You know, we lived, like many people of my age, we lived with our grandparents or an auntie or an uncle. In my, my, my case, it was my grandparents. And my mother went to Cambridge University and my father went to Edinburgh University. And when they finished, they came home and they got jobs and we were given this sort of massive amount of independence. And, you know, I thought that that would happen to me. I thought that when I would have this fantastic, fun livelihood that was doing exactly what I wanted. And then one day I'd have to get a job, you know, I'd have to go back to school and, you know, I'd be the oldest person in the class instead of the youngest person in the class, which was what, like my dad at Edinburgh University, everybody was 18 and he was 25. So, so everybody, everybody got into the band because we loved music and it just grew and grew and grew. We didn't ever lose our love of music. You, you may notice that there are people out there who have lost their love of music and even lost their love of their own music. But I'm a full-on fan of music. I, I give everybody a chance. You know what I mean? I watch the, I've, never been, I've never done a show where I haven't watched the opening act, and neither have the Beatles. Yeah. You know, it's just part of our thing. You know, you, you do a concert with people, and whoever they are, you sneak around the back, because you can, because I'm under the radar, and I go and stand behind the soundboard and I watch whoever it is. I've seen a hundred acts in the last two years, of, you know, even so that I saw the Cowsills and I've seen the Stones. You know, you see, you see lots of bands if you like music and, and that's what I do and that's who I am. It's quite simple really, isn't it? Yeah. It's a simple life. And, and because I'm under the radar and, and also if you, once again, Mick Jagger is also under the radar. He doesn't go, you've never seen him on a red carpet or a fashion show or on a TV thing where the whole family's sitting around the kitchen being rude to each other. He's avoided all that, and I've avoided all that. My life is personal, and my career is under the radar. I only want the people who follow me to follow me. You know, all these people who've got these, these Facebook accounts and people, and people are evil to them, and I don't want any of that. I just want to be, I want people to come and see me who like me. That's or true. maybe don't like me, but I'd like them at the end of the evening to like me. <laughs> You're hearing the voice of the wonderful Peter Noon, singer, songwriter, actor, Peter Noon, Frank McKay here, and the lead singer of Herman's Hermits. And again, thrilled to have him. You mentioned so many things that I'd like to follow up on, but I always remember hearing this, and if I'm misremembering it, forgive me, but that the band, there was a band playing, and you were just kind of in the audience. Now, I don't know. Is this yeah. A, yeah, you were in the audience, and they needed a singer, and you just kind of got up there, and you just took over. 
I mean, is that... I didn't kind of get up there. They knew that I was a, a, a massive music knowledge person. And because I was kind of famous locally as having this amazing record collection. I was a bit of a disc jockey. I played, I had a job in a little restaurant. I think it was called the Chicken Grill or something, where I was, I played music, I played records. But remember, I didn't have a microphone and I didn't, I just had one turntable. It wasn't like a disc jockey. It was just somebody who played music and they gave me money for that. I would take any job that was to do with music. So, so, um, what happened was that one of the guys in the band knew me from from other things, and their lead singer didn't show up. And he saw me and he said, hey, you're, you're that Peter Noon bloke. And I go, yes, I am. And he goes, do you know any of these songs? And he listed, I said, oh, I know every one of those songs. He said, could you help us out and get up and sing a couple of them? Because our lead singer hasn't shown Malcolm Lightfoot hasn't showed up. So I said, sure. And I got up there and I did know all the songs. I even knew I'll Never Dance Again, which was a Bobby Rydell B-side. And, uh, you know, they invited me to join the band. They gave me a name. I became Pete Novak and we were Pete Novak and the Heartbeats. And it took me four weeks to take control of the band Hmm. and become the leader of the band and the, the person who sort of managed it a little bit with that man who came over to me. He was already a man. He wasn't a kid. So, and that you, it usually is like that, I think, for musicians. You need somebody with some maturity to hold the band together. And this guy, Alan Wrigley, was that guy. He got us started, really, you know, because none of us were old enough to rent a, a van or, you know, get credit. Drive so, it? Know, could, you, could you drive it? Were you old enough to drive the van? No, no, but I did because I was the only one who wasn't drunk. <laughs> That's terrific. I, I I love the I fact... I mean, I used to drive at home sometimes, you know, and then it was one of those things that we eventually got of that. We, had a, we knew a guy, and we hired him to take us to gigs because, you know, our dads were all working people. So uh, we, we eventually got somebody, and we would tra travel all over England. And people don't realize how hard it is, you know, in, in, in those days, because we had to get... See, the Beatles had created this new art form, which was... You no longer needed an orchestra. You, did, you didn't need a big band with a girl singer and a, and a, and a drummer and a, three saxophones. And a, you didn't need that because the Beatles could do all of that and be entertaining and get it all into a van. So it was called this new um, low-bid business where little bands could go out and be entertaining and people could dance to them and young people were into it and... We had to get everything. So there were five of us and a driver in a, in a it was called a 12-seater van. And all, but all the equipment had to go in there and the PA system and all our suits. And all our suits were kept in this box on the top of, um, on top of the van. And, you know, a, a man-made box. They didn't have anything made in those days. And we, they opened the first freeway in England. It was the motorway. It's called the M62. And it went over the Manchester Ship Canal to, you know, which joins Liverpool and Manchester. It's the, the root of the British Industrial Revolution, the Manchester Ship Canal. And we were driving over the Manchester Ship Canal. And as we crossed it and went on the down part, the van that we owned, that we'd got this guy to drive us in, exceeded the speed limit. And the top of the van blew off and 500 new trucks ran over our suits. Wow. 
and uh, they all had tire marks on them, and we went and recovered them and still wore them. Jesus. Wow. I mean, just... I, but, but it was years and years of driving around in Nevada. Everybody thinks you just make a record. In those days, you had to have a following. People had to say, are they probably ready to make a record now? Yeah. You know, it blows my mind anytime I talk to someone who really gets it. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, but, you know, you impressed me when you said you're kind of doing the Chuck Berry thing. I remember that, you know, the late, great Chuck Berry. He would show up and he'd have a different band in every area. And I always thought, why don't more people do that? And well, it, I don't have a different band in every place, but I, I, I have my same band. But, I, I mean, the, the solo thing, I com- keep away from all that... Uh, gang stuff i I travel on my own i get on my own i I go on my own and i rent my own car they rent their they rent a car and they all go together i could easily go with them but i choose to have my own car so that i can leave when i want to Uh, and that's the chuck berry thing it's it's not about arriving and getting the money and going on stage and not because because chuck sometimes you could chuck sometimes you would see him and he'd be absolutely brilliant and then other times he was kind of lazy I want to. I give more than a hundred percent at every concert. I re, I believe that, you know. I I say it in the show. I love my songs. Yeah. You know. It's, and you it's should help. You should. It's but good. Material. I tell you one thing. I love Chuck Berry's songs better than my own. So <laughs> I would. I was always disappointed if he didn't give them, um, the right amount of attention. Yeah, you're right. I misunderstood. I thought you kind of had a different band playing every time. You're just, you're an independent guy. You like your independence. You like to get on and off when you can and spend your own time. Peter Noon is a very special guest. Wonderful, talented Peter Noon, singer, songwriter, actor, tremendous acting resume also, but you know his work from Herman's Hermits and Frank McKay here with Peter Noon. Going back to the Beatles, you know, you're part of that whole change in history and it not only did it change music and entertainment but i mean it changed the world this british invasion how old were you when that was happening i mean were you when you first saw the beatles how old were you um i i saw i, I saw the beatles a few times but one time was kind of watershed i went to i was i was in a in a practice session with my with that alan wrigley that bass player guy yeah and we could hear some music in the background. And, you know, in those days, every street had a kid with a band or an, and a guitar. It just, this would be 1963. And we'd seen the Beatles in clubs and things like that. But they were, we, so we walked out of my grandmother's house and we crossed a field, a field. And we went across another field. And on a stage, like a six-inch high stale stage, the Beatles were doing a sound check. We, did, we thought they were practicing, but they obviously knew how to say one, two, three. So it was like a sound check, and they were testing their microphones. And when they began to play, it was called the Ermston Show in Abbotsford Park in Ermston, England. And when they began to play, the bass player who signed me into the band quit show business. He said, "That's it. I'm, I'm not. I, I'm just. I, you know, I'm a non-compete here. Wow. I'll never be as good as that. That I'm quitting. Uh, but me, I was inspired by them, and I followed, and I went and tried to figure out how they'd got that good. And I quickly realized that the only way you could get good was to get lots of gigs. So I went to. I looked around, and I found people, young men." who were willing to quit their careers and go 
all in to be in a band and try and make it, which meant that you would you couldn't have a job. You could have a part-time job. I was a window cleaner, a newspaper salesman. I sold programs at football matches, and I went to school. But you needed a job to finance this band. You needed to pay to play. You know, it was we, we didn't make enough money to pay for a van and clothes and equipment. So, and I found four people who thought that was a good idea, and they turned out to be not only were they ready to work ten hours a day. You know, we like the Stones. You know, the Stones when they rehearse, they rehearse ten hours. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. And and I found these guys who who were the hermits, who not only were they prepared to work. But they were really nice people. Yeah, which is, you know, you Gordon. can't guarantee that. You know, there was no, there were, there were no criminals. They just happened, and we had no connections other than music. We didn't live in the same neighborhood. We didn't go to the same schools. We never met each other. We saw each other in bands and connected through the music. And then when I went to them, I said, you know, would you be? And uh, Carl Green was in the original band, but he wasn't the bass player, and he became the bass player through, throughout the time. So I found these really nice guys, you know, like the guitar player, his dad was a police constable. And, you know, they were really nice guys, which is, which is unusual, you know, because there were, there were no druggies and there, were no, there, were no, there was no evil in the band, which is really lucky. And, you know, we, we ended up with Andrew Oldham, who had the Stones and, and a couple of other bands, and he was deciding that the Stones could be the bad guys of rock and roll and they'd be the bad, evil guy. And Herman Summits would be the good guys. And I remember saying, well, we don't really need to have, we don't need to really pretend to be good guys. I think we actually are <laughs> right. good guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me, again. We'll, we'll take the role on easy. We won't need to, we won't need the exhausting effort of trying to be nice people because we already are. Yeah. Listen, it shows, and I've had call on the show, and it shows with him as well. Frank McKay here with Peter Noon of Herman's Hermit fame, and just a wonderful talent. Thrilled to have him, Frank McKay here with Peter Noon. I just was on the phone with Pete Best, and I yeah. yeah, and I asked him this question, you know, about Hamburg. I'm always fascinated. You know, they played in whatever, 48 gigs in 52 days or 50, whatever it was. And they played constant. It was like, you know, the seven hours a day. And you just mentioned that the Stones practiced 10 hours a day. Did you guys have a Hamburg? Did you have a moment like that where... We we rented a space, you know, it started off in Steve Titterington's. His, His sister was a police officer. So people couldn't tell us to turn down. So we got beginnings there at his place. My mom and dad had a nice place to practice. And then once we got onto the next level, we rehearsed in like an old warehouse in Manchester that had been, you know, closed down. It was the, the, the hardest thing to get was electricity. There was lots of space, but no electricity. So we, we just rehearsed. And, and we would, you know, it was interesting. We would, we would rehearse all day and a song, and we would try it that night. And if it failed, we'd just scrap it. If it didn't get a good reaction, I remember we'd do, we'd rehearse a song all day, over and over and over and over and over and over. And, over. and that, that night we would play it at a concert and, look and think about it, nah, it doesn't work. And we'd go, the next day we'd go back and learn another song. Until we had about 300 songs. And we were kind of in a strange situation because the only, t- only way you could make it in those days was to have a different repertoire than everybody else. You couldn't, 
everybody was trying to do the same song, so you just get stuck in the shuffle. So that's where we got, like, Mrs. Brown, who got a lovely daughter. We used to do My Boy Lollipop. We did Mother-in-Law. And I, I don't, not many people understood the irony of, of a 14-year-old, 15-year-old boy singing a song about a mother-in-law, but we thought that was amusing. And, of course, we had a following, and we would do drama. Um, we would do those I'll Never Dance Again and The End of the World and more towards the Roy Orbison kind of drama. And that was different from everybody else. Nobody else was doing that. You know, you could hear Mrs. Brown every day on, I don't know how many stations, but you constantly hear that. And, you know, so many of your songs, and it's a great song. When it first came out, did you think, when it first came out of you guys, when you first heard it, heard you perform it live, did you say, boy, this is it. This is going to be a song that lasts, you know, 50 years, 100 years or whatever. Did it seem like that to you or did you just not know? No, you know, it, it was it was a pleasant song that, that had history from the cavern and the early days of Herman Sermits. When I used to go on stage in my school uniform and sing it, which makes massive amount of sense. Yeah. There was some drama in it, you know, and it was a sad song. You know, this, this his girlfriend has told him, and he and he, he, he tells the mother, and and it had much more um, meaning to us than than a record. But it got we got in the studio and we had to make a, we were making our first album, and we needed twelve tracks, and we really didn't have twelve tracks that hadn't been recorded by other people. And we played Mrs. Brown, who got a lovely daughter, to Mickey Most, the producer. And he was not, like, not that impressed, but he said, we'll put it on side two, track three. No one, no one will ever notice it. Oh, wow. And we recorded it in one take, and it was just a thing that belonged to Herman Sermitz. It We thought that <clears throat> if it was a single, it would ruin our careers forever. Wow. We'd become a novelty act. Oh, my God. And then it, and when it was a massive hit, we said, let's be a novelty act. And we did Henry VIII and Lean on a Lamp Post. And, and we thought that by making There's a Kind of Hush and No Milk Today and all those um, really, really good energy records that people would forget Mrs. Brown. But here I am 50 years later, still a big song in the show, and so is Henry VIII. And I actually enjoy singing them both. But when I sing them, I'm, the, I'm singing them at the cavern. It's a, it's a hard thing to explain. It's Stanislavski. When I sing Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, I'm back at the cavern yeah. singing it. It's method. Like a right. year old boy. Yeah. yeah. A 14-year-old. Yeah, just fantastic. Peter Noon is our very special guest from Herman's Hermits and just an amazing career he's put together. And he's been around a long time for a young guy and he's still going strong. Uh, 100 and, and it was 118 shows this, this year. Yeah, yeah, next year more. But, yeah, just, you know, I'm, go I'm just going to stay healthy. Yeah, again, Frank McKay here with Peter Noon. You know, the wisdom that it took for young guys, the intelligence it took for young guys to say, you know what, let's be a novelty act. You know, this is what our strength is. This came out of us. Why not do it? I mean, it's, you know, it led to such a huge career. I, mean, I don't think anybody considers you a novelty act, you know, at this point. I mean, you're a legendary act. But, I mean, if you think about it, you know, there's a lot of stubborn people out there that might turn around and say, we're not going to do this. We're not going to be known for this kind of song or whatever. I mean, but they're both great songs, and they both stuck. And for you guys 
not to force it, not to force, hey, the hit we're going to have is going to be, you know, comparable to whatever. I mean, it well, took... Yeah, you know, I think it's a bit... We, I've given the people what they want. You know, I could go up there and do all new songs and bore the pants off everybody, but, you know, the people, people enjoy it. You know, nostalgia lives forever. Nostalgia just keeps being renewed, you know. People... It, it's quite surprising at a Herman's Home, it's Peter Noon concert, because there are people that you go, how the heck... What? You know, who, who did your mum make you come? And they go, no, my grandma. <laughs> you know, it's become a three-generational act, which no, no one supposed. The only people who had three generations were, you know, Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, right. Annie Kay. Yeah. Y you know, so so I guess it, I, I don't want to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'd rather be in the Entertainers Hall of Fame with uh, Danny Kay and... Dean Martin and those guys who, and Bobby Darren, you know, those people who weren't just singers. Nobody ever, you know, if, if, it, if it was a singing competition, John Lennon would never have had a hit, you know, because right. whether you like his voice or not, nobody would ever said, oh, he's a singer. Like, uh, Pavarotti. You know, yeah, right. right. You mentioned Andrew Oldham and also Mickey Most, the two legendary guys. Your first impression of both of them. Well, Mickey, I saw him, uh, we went to see the Everly Brothers, and uh, Mickey Most, and he was on the show, he was a singer on the show, and and I liked him because he kneeled down during one of the guitar solos, even though he wasn't playing the guitar solo. So I thought, that's pretty cool. And when he came out, the Everly Brothers and the Stones and Bo Diddley got on a bus, and he got into a Porsche. He put his guitar in the front of the Porsche, and his girlfriend in the front seat, and he drove off, and I go, Wow, that's super cool. Or whatever one said in those days about cool. Cool, that's fabulous, whatever. Yeah. And I think we decided that he'd be a good producer for us without really knowing that he was a producer. And of course he was. He was sensational. I mean, he we we actively went after him to be our producer. And, you know, like sent him a plane ticket to Manchester and booked a hotel. Please come and see us. And um, and the same with Andrew Oldham. We knew that he would be able to do a great job of... Uh, he was a bit... He, he may be the most underrated impresario type of the period, you know. Wow, amazing. But he was right up... I mean, I think, uh, I think he was right in there. He was like a bit of a boy wonder, really, to me. Had very good ideas and yeah. knew where to the pictures and clever boy. Yeah, well, you guys too. And again, I know I said it when you mentioned the novelty song, but just the fact that you pursued these guys, you pursued, you know, management and producers. You know, there's something to be said for smarts in business when you're starting out. And here you are well, as a young guy. It was just, you know, the thing with Mickey Most would be called a chance encounter, wouldn't it? It was a yeah. chance encounter. Uh, he, we just happened to see him. He was. Uh, we didn't go and see him. We went to see the Everly Brothers. Right. And that's. And the Stones were on the bill. So there's the chance encounter because the Stones have Andrew Oldham and another guy, and we eventually joined this kind of club with Andrew Oldham and Mickey Most and the Stones and Herman's Home. It's all there together. I mean, we didn't all play together. We did some concerts together, but it wasn't wasn't like that. There was room for. See, everybody forgets that it, as everybody was totally unique at the time, it's not like that anymore. You know, 
there wasn't a hairband. Everybody was unique. The Stones weren't anything like the Beatles. And the Beatles weren't like the Who, and the Who weren't like the Kinks. And the Kinks and the Who and the Herman, Herman Somitz and the Beatles weren't like the Rolling Stones. So none of us were like each other, so we couldn't compete. Yeah. We didn't we were non-compete, non-compete. We didn't want any of the Stones' business, and they didn't want any of ours. And it's a small country, and everybody knew everybody. It's an, England is an amazing small country, uh, geographically. But the music business was very small, and everybody knew what everybody was doing. So, because it was that small, as soon as you joined, joined the level, you know, there were different levels. It's sort of like the House of Commons and the House of Lords. You started off, everybody started out as the working classes and slowly moved into the middle classes. And eventually, once you made a record, you were in this other league, and you would meet the Beatles on top of the pops, and you were in the charts with the Beatles and Roy Orbison and the Supremes and the Temptations and the Four Tops and Frankie Valley and you you would all be on a show together and be equals and non-competitive, which is a good feeling in the music business. Yeah, I mean, you're surrounded by business talent there and you have it yourself, right? You have a good head on your shoulders at that point as young people. And again, Peter Noon is our very special guest, singer, songwriter, and you know his work from Herman's Hermits and Frank McKay here with Peter Noon. But who were you looking at at that moment outside of your management and your producers? Who were you looking at for any kind of structure or advice, you know, like for how to build a career? I mean, you built a career that's still going strong. I mean, 118 shows is, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it's just, and, and it's... The truth is it's accidental because like I said before, it was really my hobby. I was really good at business. I just really was naturally good at business because, you know, I came from a family who had nothing who, who built a business. So I knew how you built a business and I knew that you had to make more money than you could spend. And that was the only rule. But it, it just all, it just sort of happens. You know, it's all, all a mixture of like chance encounters. It always is. Everybody needs a Svengali. And, and I think Mickey Most was the Svengali and we accidentally fell upon him. Our manager knew nothing, nothing about the music business. Hmm. Here's how, here's how Herman Summit's got their manager who, did a fantastic job. None of it happens without all the all the people that are in it. It wouldn't have happened without him, and it wouldn't have happened without the bass player. It wouldn't have happened without the driver of the van. It's all a, a jumble of circumstances. So, our manager, we used to we were called Pete Novak and the Heartbeats, and we used to for, for money we used to do this all night to gig. It was called Ferry Across the Mersey, and it was a ship that would sail drunk people outside the three-mile limit into international waters so that they could drink all night. And, of course, they had to have a band to slip around in. And we were were that band. And we're on this ferry across the Mersey, and somebody has a private party. And at the time, he wasn't my accountant. He's on this ferry across the Mersey with his wife, and they go for dinner, and um, they're having dinner. And this accountant says, "This accountant says to the, who, the man who became Herman Summit's manager, well, you just finished university, got a degree in civil engineering. What are you going to do?'" And he says, "You know, this is going to sound weird." He says, "I'm going to take a year off, and I'm going to be like Brian Epstein. I'm going to manage a band. I'm going to find a band like the Beatles. Wow. I'm going to manage them, and." 
the woman, the wife of my our accountant, future accountant, says, I saw this this kid on ferry across the Mersey last night. You should you should check him out. Oh, really? What's his name? Pete Novak and the heartbeats. So he gets in his car the next day and comes and sees us in some little youth club. And I think there were six people in the audience, but he got it. And he came back and he said, I'd like to manage you. Um, and I remember that we said he'd be a good manager. And we, we thought he'd be a good manager. And he came over to my mom and dad's house and uh, for like a meeting. And my mom and dad took a look at him and they weren't sure, you know, because I was 40, I wasn't just a kid. Yeah. I managed him. Sounds like a big deal. So um, my mom and dad took a look at him, but he went into the, he went into the front room. We had a front room, like all Irish Catholic families, and there was a piano, and there was that, you know, every time somebody died or was christened or baptized, that piano got played. And he went in there and he played What Did I Say by Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. And we, we said, we don't want you to be in our manager. <laughs> we want you to be in the band. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I want to be the manager. So we got him... And that's it. He, he, he became our manager. And he was brilliant because he, he had no knowledge. He just knew that you just had to work. Our thing was that you just, you know how much better Herman's Hermits are this year than we were last year? Because we've worked so much that we've cleaned it all out and we got tighter and stronger. And, you know, it's training. Every time you're doing a gig, you're training. And I had to tell these, I had to tell my, the, pe my, the people, the Hermits now, that yes, you've got to forgive me that it's a bit all over the place to show because we don't have a set list, by the way. We, I refuse to have a set list. Otherwise, it'll start to become format. You know, no kidding. Uh, everyone you play without a next. set list? Yeah, I don't like set lists. I think we should just jump, throw yeah. them out, depending on how I feel the audience or how I feel. So, so ah. we've not got a set list, but now we've got this new thing where I say, you have to forgive me because I'm trying all this new stuff out because... I'm doing Westbury uh, Music Fair. Do you know Westbury Music Fair? Sure. It's right in our market here, and people listening okay. should go so, in there and visit them. And, and I want to do it on the stage on my own. I'm going to put you in the pit. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and I, I want to go up there on my own because it's in the round, and I, and I want to try all this new stuff out because you know, I've always wanted to do it, and I'm afraid of it. So... This bit that I'm doing, this Richard Harris bit, and I want you to say this, so just forgive me and, we'll, you know, just wait for me and t I'll get it. Uh, because because I'm sort of that old-fashioned kind of guy. I I do shows in Jackpot, Nevada, but I'm pretending that I'm on stage in Westbury. I'm mm -hmm. going, I wonder if this will work this way and this way, you know, because Westbury, you know, once... You know, Mickey Dolenz, a good a good friend of mine, is in the Monkeys. Once he's at the at Westbury, he came up with one of the greatest comedy lines ever. He goes, "I like playing in the round here because it gives everybody an equal opportunity to see my ball spot." <laughs> Absolutely brilliant comedy line. Yeah. So you know, I I don't have a ball spot, but I do know that people need to see. You can't start a joke facing those people and end up facing and have the punchline so it requires a lot of thought and choreography really yeah. so that's what i'm working on so um every show i do now and it, since the beginning of the band we've always been working on the next show in a show 
That's terrific. I mean, the enthusiasm that you still have for, and again, I don't, pardon me for sounding, you know, impressed or surprised. I guess you should expect it, but I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, this is why your career has been so good. You got a passion for all of this. You love this. I mean, you can tell and, and yeah, you know, you love your music. You should. It's dynamite. Peter Noon, once again, is our very special guest and singer, songwriter, artist, and certainly a, a wonderful actor as well. A lot of voiceover and, and acting work. Frank McKay here with Peter Noon. We've got a couple moments left. Peter, give us a website or a social media site where people can kind of follow along with what you do. Well, you know, there's, I've got peternoon.com which is, uh, has all the dates and a daily-like update of what's going on. And there's also Herman's Hermit Star and Peter Noon Facebook, which is a good one. I, I like that one. And I, I've also got Instagram, just Peter Noon. And I kind of like Instagram because you can just fo- you can follow around on the day. So, the, the, you know, that's people find me by, you know, if you want to find me, you just have to be able to spell my name. I think that's what I should say. Yeah, a lot of people... The e you know, if you buy on an iPhone, I, I become Peter No One. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, hey, listen, congratulations on an amazing career, still going strong. Let me ask you, just in closing, how far in advance do you book? Are you booked next year? Or are you kind of taking it by... Uh... Oh, no, next year we've got over 100 dates already. Wow. See, that's just amazing. Just That's terrific. Yeah, you know, we say, to, we say my agent, I tell him every time he calls me, Ten more years, Howie. Ten more years. <laughs> That's great. Well, he must love you, my God. All these. Oh, we just got. To stay, you know, the thing is, you got to stay healthy. The, the whole trick is, is, people go look. The stones are still because they stayed healthy. You know, it isn't. It is a job, and you can't do it if you're not fit. Yeah. You can't do it. You can't be. You know, the 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 the, the worst word to use at a concert is disappointed. Right. You cannot disappoint people. You cannot go and see a show and they don't do the hit that you wanted them to see. You can't go and uh, and they're disappointed on how you look. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we, we try, you have to work harder to not disappoint people because if you get a reputation of being lively and fit and all that, you have to stay lively and fit. Remember, Herman's Hermits were like Freddie and the Dreamers. We could jump around as good as anybody. Yeah, you were performers. I mean, not only musicians, but you were performers. You took it very seriously. I mean, it just like a little later, the Rascals, I thought, were like you guys in a sense. And, you know, different, different style, but they were really concerned with how they came across to the audience. That they put a lot of energy into it, and I thought they were like you in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they were very enthusiasm. Yeah, enthusiasm. Rascals, enthusiasm. Yeah, no doubt about it. But listen. Beatles, I, Beatles. Enthusiasm. Yeah. Stones. Enthusiasm still. Well, listen, Peter Noon, I'm thrilled to have you. A real honor to talk to you. Congratulations on an amazing career and still going strong. Look forward to seeing you in person. Hey, likewise. It's great talking to you. Thanks for the call. It's great talking to you. Yeah, and we want to thank everyone for tuning in. The wonderful, wonderful, great Peter Noon. He's been at it for a long time and an amazing career that he's put together, singer, songwriter, actor, Peter Noon from the Herman's Hermits, and signing off. Thank you all for tuning in. Frank McKay, seeing you next time on Breaking It Down. This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. 
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 